Well, this morning we are continuing on. We're almost finished uh, walking through the the Christian story, the story of redemption as we've called it. Uh, And so let me just catch us up real quick as to where we've been. We've got three more weeks as we look through the story of redemption as we walk through Scripture. And so we started in the far left talking about this idea of creation. Then we moved to the fall Uh, where we talked about how uh, we rebelled against God and how that introduced sin and death and and suffering to the world. But then immediately in that chapter, in Genesis chapter 3, God began His work of redemption, uh, taking us eventually to the cross of Jesus Christ. And so we spent uh, most of the time in that third panel looking at redemption. And so we talked about uh, the covenants and how God began to do that work by carving out a people for himself. We saw him uh, do that through the law. We saw this idea of kingdom begin to emerge where we saw God as our true king. We saw the wisdom of this good king. And then uh, we got to about four weeks ago this picture of the incarnation, the form of Jesus Christ that was casting shadows throughout the Old Testament that we have been waiting for, right? That's what Christmas is. It's, it's saying, hey, God became flesh. He put on skin and dwelt among us. And that was the, really the, uh, the trumpeting of his uh, work of redemption that we, see, that we will see come to fruition. And in Jesus Christ, we see three things. We see the realization of total life that we had separated ourselves from in the garden and the life giver. We see Jesus being the embodiment of the ultimate form of love on the cross. And then last week, Sibby talked to us about how in Jesus Christ, we can find true justification, being declared not guilty through his work, not through our own. Today, what we're going to do is we're going to see this thread that we saw when God carved out his people in the Old Testament through those covenants be brought forward to his work of redemption through a New Testament group of people called the church and how life and love and justification are all coming together to display his goodness through the body of Christ and through the church. And so as we get going, I'm going to just ask this question. Why does the church even exist? Why does the church, why are we here today? I mean, it's just like a social club, a holy hot club, a hot tub. Like what, why are we here this morning? Don Carson explores this question a little bit in his book, The God Who Is There, in part by starting off saying there are many people who actually believe the church should not exist. It actually shouldn't exist. Christopher Hitchens is one such person. He was an atheist, and he wrote a book called God Is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. And he argues that the entire record of religion, all religion, moves towards war, hatred, and strife. Now, to be fair to Hitchens, uh, there is uh, some partial truth in that you do see a lot of that over the course of the history of religion, right? You have jihadists, and you have conflicts within uh, people like the Muslim communities in the Middle East. You see some of the horrors that the church inflicted upon the Muslim communities through things like the Crusades. Within the Christian faith, you see various conflicts and wars that have broken out over the years. You see the Northern Ireland conflicts between Catholics and Protestants. You see the Thirty Years' War, which might have been one of the most devastating wars of all times, where there was uh, somewhere between six and eight million uh, killed over the course of this time. And this was a war between Catholics and Protestants, right? In part, this happens because religion treats matters with ultimate importance, right? 
I mean, that, that makes sense. As you think about religion, we're talking about the things that we make ultimate in our lives. Now, the reality is, is sometimes you see religious outfits waging war because of power and control, right? We also see it happening because of money. But, but sometimes we see it happening because people believe, I am the mouth of God. Therefore, I'm going to wage war. But friends, wars and conflicts uh, aren't, don't just come from religion itself. Nazism and Stalinism, for instance. Those were not religious wars. They were not based in religion at all. Did they try to hijack Christianity? Yes, absolutely. That was more about control and power. The 20th century is declared one of the bloodiest centuries of all times. And, and really, that came um, at, on the heels of things like Nazism, Stalinism, or the killing fields in Cambodia where a third of the population of that country were killed. But it had nothing to do with religion. In fact, it was atheistic communism that was behind that. And so I make these points to say, it's not as if religion poisons everything while everything else is okay and good. But that's the only source of conflict. In fact, I would say it's embedded in human nature more than it is anything like religion. But in our own faith, we do have to do business with the fact that there are Christian fanatics. Consider the bombings of abortion clinics. Consider those who would run to outfits like the KKK, claiming to be the mouth of God, uh, imposing atrocities on other people groups. Even today, we see extremists in our political worlds with seeing many in the church flood towards outfits and organizations like, or not organizations, but movements like QAnon. So we need to evaluate the origin of fanaticism, particularly in the church. And Tim Keller in his Reason for God does just that, where he says, belief that you are accepted by God by sheer grace is profoundly humbling. The people who are fanatics then are not so because they are too, not because they are too committed to the gospel, but because they are not committed enough. Think of people you consider fanatical. They're overbearing, self-righteous, opinionated, insensitive, and harsh. Why? It's not because they are too Christian, but because they are not Christian enough. They are fanatical, fanatically zealous and courageous, but they are not fanatically humble, sensitive, loving, empathetic, forgiving, or understanding, as Christ was. What strikes us as overly fanatical is actually a failure to be fully committed to Christ and His gospel. Friends, we often become fanatical about something because we're, we're fanatical about something other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have lost the centrality of who Jesus was and what he came here to do. And that happens, yes, even in the context of the church. Yet, God himself believes that the church is still necessary. Here's what he says in Ephesians 3. Paul is saying, I came to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Why on earth would God use a jacked up group of people like ourselves who are prone to fanaticism to display his complete manifold wisdom to the world around us. How is that even possible? Well, that's where we're going to look today because, friends, the story of redemption runs through a group of of people transformed together by God 
so that we can demonstrate His glory. So let me pray for us, and then let's walk through this together. Father, uh, Lord, we come before You today, and Father, I, I pray that You'll help us all see that at heart we can become fanatical about pretty much anything other than You. Lord, all of us are are fanatics at heart about many things. But Lord, where it moves away from being fanatical about your gospel of grace, will you convict us? Will you point that out by the power of the Holy Spirit? And would you move us to look more and more like you? Lord, would you be with my words? Would you protect them? Would you open our hearts? Uh, And Lord, would you shape us to be a church that looks more and more like you? We pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, the outline is simple. I just basically gave it to you. Uh, it's this picture of transformed, point one, together, point two, by God, point three. The church is a group who are transformed together by God. So Ephesians chapter two, we're going to have our noses in Ephesians chapter two most of the time today. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open in them to Ephesians two, but read with me verses one to five as we start. Paul writes this, he says, and you were dead in, the trespass, in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So as we look at this idea of being transformed, there's two things we're going to see. We're going to see His work. We're going to see we're transformed by His work and in our walks. By His work and in our walks. First, let's look at by His works and where transformation comes from. Remember, we've said in Jesus comes ultimate life, ultimate love, and ultimate justification. And we see all three of these things coming together in the body of Christ here in this section. Did you see it? Verses 1, we were all dead in our trespasses and sins. Yet what happens by verse 5? God, rich in His mercy, made us alive. There it is, death to life. Verse 3, we see this idea of His love. Because we were at one time, by nature, children of wrath. That means we were his ultimate enemy. But then what happens by verse 4? Being rich in mercy, he loved us. He took us from being enemies to family members through the cross. And then we see this picture of justification. Again, we were his children of wrath, but he was rich in mercy. He was merciful to us, and he saved us through the cross, declaring us not guilty. So friends, here's what I want you to see. I want you to see the depths of the work of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is not, it's not a spiritual upgrade, right? It's not him just kind of fixing a couple of things. It's taking something that is dead and making it alive. Something that is an ultimate enemy and making it a child of God. It is taking the ultimate guilty person and making them innocent. Mark Dever said this, if, if congregants are regarded as consumers, rightly expectant of a spiritual upgrade, not as rebels before a holy judge, then the gospel has probably been forgotten. 
If we think we just need a tire change, and that's why we come to church on Sunday, just to kind of get our moral passport stamped and feel good about ourselves, we've missed what the gospel actually says about us and the work that he's done on our behalf. So that's being transformed by his work. Let's look at this idea of being transformed in our walks. Pick back up with me in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is a gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. All right, so verses 8 and 9. This goes to where Sibby was talking last week about uh, the fact that we can do absolutely nothing to clean ourselves up and to save ourselves and to bring ourselves back to life. We are not saved by any works we do, not by any identity that we create, by not by any resume we hold before God. It is simply His total act of grace. However, He doesn't just bring us to life. He doesn't just declare us not guilty. There is a transformation that has to happen in our lives because by nature, we are rebels against Him and He must recreate these rebels so that we can bring Him honor and glory. And that's exactly what He says in verse 10. Did you read it? We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus. When we place our faith in Christ, we become a new creation to walk in good works that He prepared beforehand that we would partake in. We are not saved by works, but good works are a result of our salvation. Ryan Shazir. I don't know if you know that name or not. I know this is Eagles country, but Ryan Shazir was a Pittsburgh Steeler. He was the first-round draft pick in 2014. He was a two-time Pro Bowl inside linebacker, and he just retired here in September. Now, the significance of his retirement is it, became a, it came a 1,000 days after uh, he received a devastating hit in a game in 2017, which led to a traumatic spinal cord injury, and he could not walk. He was on the field. He couldn't move his legs. He was rushed to the hospital. And I don't know if you've ever, uh, I don't know why, over the course of years, I've been captured by these stories where there are spinal cord injuries, particularly in NFL, and, and what the doctors do in the moments following. They, they deep freeze the spinal fluid or that area of the body, and then these surgeons amazingly go in there and, and put things back together, not just to stabilize their lives, because oftentimes... Uh, they have things like lung function and whatnot that won't happen if there's uh, a traumatic injury to the spinal cord. But, but they go in and, and they do these surgeries. And it is just amazing to me what these surgeons can actually do. And then after that, you've got your physical therapist. I love physical therapists. You're amazing. What you are able to do to, to push people through so they can do something like walk again is unbelievable. And Ryan Shazir, praise the Lord, after his injury, is able to walk again. No longer able to play football, but, but he's able to walk. So it wasn't just to stabilize his life. There were so many who walked with him to encourage him to walk again. Now, yes, a lot of this was due to Ryan and his perseverance, but, but, but here's where I'm getting at with this, is when I think of situations like Ryan's, and maybe I'm drawn to this because as a kid, uh, doctors told me, hey, you got a medical condition, you're never going to be able to do X, Y, and Z, and there was a doctor who worked on me and basically did the impossible, and I could then do the things that I wasn't supposed to do again. But, but do you know what happens when you see something like that and a surgeon skillfully goes in and puts things back together to where a person can walk again? It, it causes me to, 
to really glorify these medical workers. To go praise the Lord for these men and women who are so skilled at putting people back together and helping them walk once again. And in a way, that's a picture of what we see happening in the church. Now, this illustration falls well short of our starting point. It wasn't like we were spiritually walking, then we had an injury, and then we started walking again. We were literally dead in our trespasses. But, but what God did is He put us back together, not just so that we could sit in a chair the rest of our lives, but so that we could walk again. So that we could walk and follow Him and do the good works that He planned beforehand that we would walk in. And so, friends, let me just say this. If God isn't glorious to us, if His work of salvation isn't absolutely awe-inspiring, then we've missed our beginning state. We've missed the devastating injury that sin has inflicted on us. Because what this is meant to do is meant to pick our eyes up to glorify God in His work of transformation. And then how horrible would it be if Ryan was like, thanks for putting me back together, but I'm okay, I'm not going to walk anymore, I'm just going to sit here, right? He rehabilitates us or He brings us to life so that we may walk in the good works as a church that He's called us to. Which leads us to our second point together. Why am I saying as a church? This just looks like He's talking to an individual here. Yeah, maybe it's a church, but this is just between me and Jesus, this whole transformation thing. Well, not quite. Ephesians 2. Let's look at this idea of transformed together. Verses 11 and 12. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made, by the, uh, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world." So when we talk about this concept of together here, we're going to see two ideas. We're going to see far and near. We're going to see far and near. And so first, let's talk about the far. So it's saying therefore, right? Whenever you see the word therefore in your Bible, you ask the question, what's the therefore, therefore? And so this therefore is saying, remember, you were totally dead in your sin, unable to get to God. And he's saying, as a result of this, remember that you were Gentiles in the flesh. Now, what does that mean? Well, uh, the Gentiles, or the uncircumcision is what they call, call them here, are the people who were not Israelites in the Old Testament. The Israelites were the ones who were given the covenant promises of God, and the Gentiles were those who, who did not receive those. And so, in a way, they were enemies, far worse enemies in many cases than any conservative or liberal in our day and age. And it's saying, as a result of this, in verse 12, that we were separated from the promises that were given to Israel that pointed ahead to Jesus Christ. That we were alienated from Him. That we were strangers to the promises of the Gospel. And that there was, it says here in verse 12, no hope. No hope. Not a little bit. Not a glimmer of it. Zero hope at all. But then, verses 13 to 16 take place, where he says this, But now, in Christ Jesus... You who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. There's the near. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, therefore killing the hostility." 
So you see here, this picture of the blood of Christ in verse 13 is what begins to bring us near to Jesus. Now this is when you might go, so where does the church come in? And I would say verse 14 is where it's made explicit. Did you read what it said? It said, the blood of Christ brings us near. He himself is our peace, who has made us both one and broken down the wall of hostility. So he's saying, y'all, Gentiles and Jews... Through the gospel and the blood of the cross, he has broken down the wall of hostility and he is making us one together as he brings us near to himself. Here's a picture of uh, the wall that was built around the second temple in Jerusalem uh, that basically was a wall that separated the innermost holy of places from the outer courtyards. And, And what this rock basically is, is it's a warning sign, and this is at the Israel Museum, Uh, that served as a do not enter for Gentiles, non-Israelites. It says, do not enter. It says, warning, Gentiles, or or warning, uh, Gentiles only have themselves to blame for their death if they cross this line. So it's basically saying Gentiles stay out. You, You don't have the same level of involvement with these sorts of promises that God's people does. And when it says God broke down this wall of hostility, this is just a perfect picture of how God through the cross crumbled that wall. How there's now no separation. When he says he did away with these ordinances in the Mosaic law that separated these two, he's basically saying the parts of the Mosaic law that separated Gentiles from the Israelites, he's saying that's done away with in the body of Christ. Whatever hostility there was that existed then is no longer because of the gospel. And ultimately, in verse 16, the only way this happens is through the cross. He reconciles us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So do you see that what the gospel does is it doesn't just undo the hostility between us and God. But there is a communal aspect that as those who are very different, those who might war on ideological terms are actually made friends and family and brothers and sisters with one another because of the cross of Jesus Christ. The picture I have is of a triangle where you have the cross at the top, right? And then you have kind of the Israelites and those who, ha- who were, uh, had the covenant promises of God available to them. And then the Gentiles, their enemies and also God's enemies, what the cross did is it not only brought us closer to himself, but closer to one another. Mark Dever says this. He says, Christian proclamation might make the gospel audible, but Christians living together in their local congregations, and what he would say there in that verse in John, in love, make the gospel visible. The church is the gospel made visible. He says this because as enemies here on earth are brought to love one another through the cross, it mirrors the reconciliation that happened on a cosmic level between us and God. And so, friends, when we have that axe to grind with another Christian over opinion-level issues, and it creates division among us, and most recently, it's politics, insert whatever other issue there might be, but when we allow those opinion-level issues to divide us, we're grabbing that rock, and we're going, nope, I'm rebuilding the wall. I'm spitting on the cross in Christ's work. Let's keep building. 
And Jesus is saying, no. Fundamentally, that is a denial of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, there are no Lone Ranger Christians, at least in God's economy. This passage in 1 Peter, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Do you see how our receiving mercy in the gospel is inseparable from us becoming a people? The church? So that we can demonstrate his restorative, redemptive glory as an illustration at the very least among one another? Friends, we are needy and needed in each other's lives. We are needy and needed. A Gallup poll came out just last week that I think screams this to us. In this poll released this month, they show the change in the numbers of those rating their mental health as excellent year over year, 2019 to 2020. I haven't had time to really dig into the numbers, but what I will tell you is it's a fascinating study. But here's the reality. Every category dropped in people's assessment of their mental health. I know you're shocked about that in a pandemic, right? Except for one. Here's the categories that dropped. Gender. They all dropped, no matter what gender, no matter what political party, all dropped, no matter what race, all dropped, no matter what marital status, they all dropped, no matter what age, no matter what your income level, they all dropped. The only one that actually increased are those who attended weekly religious services. That's the only one. Isn't that fascinating? Now, that's across all faiths. That's not just an apologetic for the Christian faith, but I think it does articulate this picture that we are needy and we are needed. Not only uh, do we need Jesus in the gospel, but we need one another. Well, finally, we are transformed together by God. Pick back up with me in verses 17 to 22. It says this, And he came and he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we have both access in one spirit to the Father. And then skip down to 22. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now this pandemic season has created a strange phenomenon and it's the phenomenon of we're all very tired of our homes and we want to blow stuff up and rebuild it. Uh, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands of how many people are having work done in their house right about now. But it's probably a lot of us. It's happening in our world as well, right? And, And so the picture here of what God is saying is he's saying, hey, I have transformed you together as one people and, and I'm doing work as a contractor continuing to build a dwelling place for God. God is a contractor. In fact, the contractor that is named here, by the way, I am one of the people who I have to have a contract. I know some of you could like build a shopping mall with your own two hands. I can't do that. I can barely change a light switch. But, um, but, but I need a contractor. And God is saying, you do too as the church. And do you know who verses 18 and 22 say our contractor is? It's the Holy Spirit. Verse 2, what does it say all the way back? You remember a couple of minutes ago. He's saying those who have not uh, called on Christ in faith, who God hasn't brought to life, actually has the spirit of the prince of the world living in them. But the moment we place our faith in Jesus, that spirit is evicted and every single Christian has the Holy Spirit inside of us. And he begins to go to work. In between those two verses that I read, it says, it says he is building uh, his temple 
and Jesus Christ himself is the cornerstone. What Christ is doing as a contractor is he is building a bunch of misfit enemies to glorify himself, to look more and more like Jesus. So the rest of the world can say, what an unbelievable builder. What an unbelievable architect to take enemies and strangers and to make them family members and to make them look more and more like this wise God. I don't have time to go into it. I wanted to. But if you go to Galatians chapter 5, it's this picture of what this Holy Spirit is doing inside the church, even when we're at war with one another. It's saying we begin to, as we stay in step with the Spirit, as we constantly open our hands and give our lives to His direction, He is bearing in us the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. When we find ourselves veering away from that, when we find ourselves grabbing a brick and putting it in between one another, saying, I am angry, I'm going to create divisions, we have, we have walked off the path of following the Holy Spirit. We've left the building, if you will. And in that moment, God just invites us to come back. Confess that and come back. Friends, why does the church exist? It's not to create fanatics. The church is the gospel made visible. God's glory in the work of redemption, making the spiritually dead walk, making enemies family, and showing the character of the builder as we walk in the power of the Spirit. The church is a people transformed together by God. Let me close in prayer as we move to communion this morning. Father, for those who don't know you this morning, my prayer is that you would right now open their eyes to see their spiritual state. Dead, enemies, guilty, but that by your Spirit, you would show them that by trusting in you, Jesus, and you alone, that they have life in you, are loved by the King of the world, and are declared not guilty. Father, for those of us who have placed our faith in you, yet we forget this often, that we feel unlovable, that we feel dead, where we feel guilty or ashamed. Lord, would you remind us again of the work you've done in our lives? And Father, I pray that this reality, that, that you not only save us to yourself as an individual, but to, uh, to you as a people, God, would you work in us this spirit of reconciliation, not only between you, but between one another. And Lord, not only between one another in this church, between our church and other brothers and sisters who call on the same gospel who we may disagree with and have separated ourselves from. Oh, Lord, do not let us get away with that. Convict us. Father, where we, where we have become fanatical, where we have been willing to scream and sow division as you actually call us away from, 
just before you name the fruits of the Spirit. Father, where we are not in step with your building through your Holy Spirit, I pray that you will move us to a place of confession and move us towards the fruit of your Spirit, where we just simply open-handedly come to you and say, Lord, make me patient. Make me humble. Lord, remind us that we all start in the same place, and there is no room for self-righteousness. So, Lord, be with this time of communion, we pray in your name. Amen.